Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland uh, for one of our very special guest uh, feature editions. Um, morning, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. It's snowing outside. It's snowing on the Dodge. Oh, is it oh, snowing on I'm the Dodge? It I'm putting it through its cold cold weather test later. <laughs> Fantastic. Might and even who get it in four-wheel the... drive. You know, who knows? <laughs> oh, wow. Put on the smock, I'll be, I'll be off. I mean, you live in the countryside. You ought to have a four-wheel drive car, unlike all the people who live around me here in Chiswick, <laughs> who, who don't need a bloody four-wheel drive car. Yeah. A well-known, well-worn topic. Anyway, um, who are we talking to today, James, are, and about what? Yeah, we are talking to Dr Joseph Quinn, who is uh, an Irish academic, um, sometimes working at the um, National Archives. He's been a, a, a good friend to me and, and incredibly helpful, um, and, and now working at the Imperial War Museum. Um, and Joseph is an absolute mine of information about those, was it 60,000, 80,000 Irish people, Irish subjects, who, who fought for Britain in the Second World War? It's a very good question how many there were. It's actually the best question you could have started off with because it's a question that cannot really be answered, but we can sort of, we can make estimations and we can make guesses about how many there were. And actually that in some ways is more exciting than knowing the full figure. And I'll explain why there's a lack of information about how many there were. Uh, there were only tallies kept in the Northern Ireland recruiting area during the Second World War for the number of recruits that were recruited in this particular uh, area. And that is inclusive of Southern and Northern Irish recruits. And we have those tallies. It's 71,450, exactly that number, of which um, about two-thirds are from the South. Uh, 15,000, around about 15,000 are women and uh, most of those women are from the north and we know those figures for northern ireland but we do not know the figure of southern irish and northern irish recruits that were conscripted or that voluntarily enlisted in britain in mainland britain england um, scotland and wales we have no idea what those figures are because those tallies were not maintained to the same extent that they were in the Northern Ireland recruitment area. So it's a big mystery how many um, recruits there were from the entire island of Ireland during the Second World War. It's one of the big mysteries, and we won't be able to crack that mystery until the service records um, come online and researchers are able to get into the service records and mine them for data. I mean, there were, there were people pre-war, though, who Irish people pre-war joining the the British Army, weren't they? It was a sort of, it, it, I mean, it's, there's been a long, to be honest, a long, there was a long tradition of it while Ireland was still part of the United Kingdom. And then after the Republic was born, there were still people doing it for economic reasons, for tra- traditional reasons, the family or whatever, weren't there? That, that, that was happening anyway, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're alluding to the uh, military tradition, the very long yeah. uh, tradition of service in the British Armed Forces that long predated Irish independence in 1922. 
Um, and I suppose the most recent example, and this is something that has bearing upon those volunteers who served in the Second World War, is the service of the vast majority of volunteers, for instance, that I sampled in my study, um, about 57%, I'd say it would go up to 60% as the sample increases. The vast majority of those had aunts, uncles, mothers, fathers who served in the First World War. Quite a number of them have a lengthy family military tradition that goes back. It, it goes back to uh, Napoleonic Wars, it, c- it can involve service in the British Army in the 19th century. Um, there is, as you are well aware of, um, uh, James and Al, uh, there is a lengthy tradition of Irish service in British uniform. Uh, back, Absolutely. Yeah, back, back during the uh, time of uh, the French and Indian Wars or the Seven Years' War, you, uh, um, even when the penal laws were in place, when there were actually restrictions upon Catholic service in the armed forces. Um, Catholic soldiers were recruited very liberally in spite of those laws. About 44 regiments of Irish Catholic manhood were recruited to the colours in order to fight the French in North America. So Irish Catholic manpower, even at a time when it was prohibited to levy it, was fundamental to Britain's military supremacy during the long 18th century and would continue to be so right into the 19th century. And one of the reasons why Catholic emancipation happens in 1829 is because the Duke of Wellington, then Prime Minister, is pushing for it. Because he said, without yeah. Irish Catholic manhood in the Peninsular War, we would not have prevailed. And 40% of his army that stood at Waterloo against Napoleon uh, were Irish Catholic soldiers. There, there is a long tradition of Irish military service which actually didn't go anywhere at the moment when the Irish state became independent. In fact, and this is fascinating, the late Professor Keith Jeffrey alluded to this, about 21,000 Irish soldiers were recruited into the British forces during the Irish War of Independence. That's about... 21,000? Four or five times the number of insurgents that served in the Irish Republican Army fighting against uh, the British forces, Crown forces in Ireland during the War of Independence. Four or five times oh, that number uh, were, were, were recruited during the same period. Which goes to show you that even at a time when physical force nationalism or Irish Republican nationalism is in its, its ascendant, and even at a time when relations between our two islands are actually you know, quite poisoned and very, very, in a very wretched, deplorable state as they were between 1919 and 1921, even despite those conditions, recruitment to the British forces from Ireland still continues unabated. And Joseph, why, why is that? It is extraordinary. It really, really is. But, but, but why is it? Is that just because it provides a career? Because it's job? Because because the money's they, not the money's not that good. The money's not that great. <laughs> I mean, but, but you know, you get your free square meals a day and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, what what is the motive? Or is it national? You know, is it because they want to follow the flag? I mean, what what's the main reason? This or is, is, the, is it just a host of different things? This is. The reason that I've come up with this is this is where my book is going, and I've done a lot of thinking about why it is that the Irish continue to serve right up to the present day in very uh, considerable numbers in the British forces, and I believe the reason is cultural. Irish service in British uniform is cultural. It's part of our cultural tradition in Ireland. It's part. It's it, it, it for many many uh, generations and centuries. It was an acceptable, indeed, even an honourable uh, career choice. This was you. You would see 
lads coming home on, on leave in the streets of Dublin, in Inchicore and uh, on Henrietta Street, the working class districts of Dublin and other working class areas of Ireland produced whole battalions of soldiers. And it was part of the tradition within those communities for people to serve in the armed forces. And that, to a certain extent, continued in the case of the Irish army after independence. But the funny thing was that you would still see, in independent Ireland, you would still see um, young lads come home on leave wearing their Royal Navy uniforms or their British Army uniforms going into their households. It still continued during the interwar period in independent Ireland. In fact, actually, one meeting of uh, an IRA Old Comrades Association in County Clare, East County Clare, complained at that meeting that the town of Kilrush, this is a seaside town in uh, County Clare, resembled, it more resembled a Royal Navy town than an Irish seaside <laughs> town. And that was the Good remark God. that was made. And there were actually a lot of complaints in the 1930s by people of a Republican affiliation. Bear in mind, De Valera uh, uh, came to power yeah. in 1932. And this is a period where Republicanism, in terms of constitutional politics, is back in vogue, uh, you know, after the Civil War. And, you know, De Valera is really making his stamp felt upon Irish society. He's remoulding the constitution. He's changing relations between Britain and Ireland, and yet within Irish society, this tradition of service continues, and it provokes a lot of angst, even fear, among the more Republican uh, side of the population who are not entirely, you know, sort of sympathetic to this, but they know that there's not much they can do about it. And this is around the same time that uh, Admiral, Admiral Somerville is murdered in County Cork, and that is also related to the recruitment of young Irish lads to the British forces, to the Royal Navy. The note that's left on his dead body in his doorway in, um, I think it's around Cashelton, uh, Shen in uh, West Cork, um, on the front, he's murdered on the front doorstep of his house by IRA gunmen. And the note that is... And when does this happen, Joseph? This happens in 1936. And he's a retired, he's an Anglo-Irish admiral um, retired from the Royal Navy. And a note is left on his body by the gunmen who murder him that uh, this... Um, English, um, you know, this this spy, um, or this essentially this not, not a traitor but a spy, uh, recruited uh, so many young men into the British forces in so many months. So that's the ostensible motive that's given for his murder in this newspaper cutout placard that they put in his body after they kill him. And it's a particularly shocking murder. They they reverberations of it are felt in Whitehall, they're felt in the corridors of power in Westminster, they're felt in Northern Ireland and in Dublin as well and there's a huge revulsion in Irish society about this murder but there continues to be a certain amount of Republican protest in the 1930s but towards the end of the decade the Irish government resolve these societal problems around recruitment so that it actually, funnily enough can be maintained and recruitment still continues it still continues into the British forces right up until the point when um, war is declared in 1939 and uh, when Ireland declares neutrality. God, that's, this is just extraordinary. So when, so when, war, when, when the war breaks out, is there then, a, is there then a, um, an uptick in recruitment? Do more people come in because... Uh, and again, it's, it's, always, it's essentially unknowable in the end why anyone volunteers, isn't it? Um, but... but but, but well, well, or is it? I mean, this is where we're going, obviously. But because because there's you know there's a, a lot of a lot of volunteering happens uh, 
but does it happen in Ireland with the outbreak of war? Because, because after all, you know, the, Hitler's got to be dealt with is the public mood in, in, um, in Britain. Certainly, you know, finally, we've got to do something about this. Appeasement is appeasement is over and war is an option. And so you're going to people have got to have got to join up. Is there an is there an Irish uptick? I mean, and again, part of it, as you say, is unknowable because it's happening in 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 mainland Britain. I really don't like that expression when we're talking about Ireland. It always it always, always gets into news items about about Northern Ireland. That, uh, but but you see what I mean? It, it, um, how do we know? And, and is there a, is there a surge? There is um, a slight surge in recruitment, um, but it's it's not actually until after 1940 that the recru- the levels of recruitment are really felt. I mean, initially in Northern oh, Ireland, I just need to see which side the wind was blowing. It, well, <laughs> it, well, it, it, there is actually an initial surge of recruitment in the opening months of the war in North in the Northern Ireland recruitment area. They're recording very strong levels of recruitment. What the recruiters in Northern Ireland don't want to admit is that a lot of those recruits are coming from the south. Uh, there are recruits right. from the north, but the thing is that there's not. This is a big political problem in Northern Ireland. They're not actually getting enough recruits from their own community. The unionist community yeah. in Northern Ireland actually prove rather. This may seem slightly offensive to the unionist community, but the the reality is reflected by the figures. They prove rather reluctant to serve. Um, it, it's pretty sticky, isn't it? it yeah, it, yeah. And there's no conscription either. There's so, no conscription. So, no, no, because yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah. it's an absolute no-no from the point of view of Irish nationalists, both in Northern Ireland yeah. and in the South. They won't have conscription permitted any at any part of the island. But the lack of recruits from Northern Ireland, the lack of recruits from the unionist community, and about 27,000 from Northern Ireland joined during the Second World War, but the lack of recruits mm. is counterbalanced by the fact that so many recruits are coming from the South. So it weighs the balance very favourably um, for the Northern Ireland recruitment area. And actually, in some ways, in some ways, the fact that about 45,000, 45,000 odd uh, Southern Irish recruits were pulled in by the Northern Ireland recruitment area, it, it really, it, it meant that that um, district, that military district, really pulled its own weight during the Second World right. War and in fact recruited about the same number that they estimated they would have gotten if they'd introduced conscription in the first place. It's amazing though, you think about, I mean, you, you know, obviously I was sort of studying the Irish Brigade in um, in Sicily, um, lots of people not from Ireland in that, but but still, you know, Irish names. You've got Brooke, you've got Alexander, you've got Montgomery, all, all Irishmen. Um, the last surviving Battle of Britain pilot John um, Hemingway. from either side, mm-hmm. uh, Paddy Hemingway is a Dubliner, I think. You know, it's, it's, I remember reading um, when I was doing my work on Normandy. I was uh, actually at the Imperial War Museum. I was looking at the um, wartime diaries of Mary Mulry, I think it was her name, uh, who was a nurse. And her brother had gone to America in the late 1930s. And so she bumped into him because he was in the US. And her father was very upset that she was being a nurse and an officer in the in the what was effectively the British Army. Yes, um, and because her father served in the War of Independence. Um, right. Yeah, uh, he was in the he he was in the IRA. Um, but right. and but the thing is the the thing is this is not unusual. It's a slightly awkward conversation in that family. Yeah. Well, there could be. I could tell you umpteen instances of uh, you know uh, within families of um, a mixed military tradition where. A clash happens in the confines of the kitchen of that household. 
for instance, I'll give you an example. Jack Hart, who became a senator in the Labour Party and was a friend of uh, Yasser Arafat. That gives you an idea of Jack Hart's politics, yeah. the kind of circles that he moved <laughs> in. Um, Jack uh, served in the British Army during the Second World War. He served in Malta. He was involved in fighting the insurgency in Palestine before the war, war broke out. He was a PO, he was on he was on Leros. He was with that Irish battalion, the Second Royal Irish, that were captured at Leros, um, and he yes. was a, he was a POW, and he endured um, a very terrible time when he was in captivity. But Jack was um, Jack came from a military family. His father was in the First World War. Uh, his brother. Um, served in the British Army in the late 1920s and 30s and he saw pictures of his brother on the mantelpiece and he said all these pictures of my brother where you know in all these exotic places a Sudanese native standing right beside his shoulder I knew that this is exactly what I wanted to do so this is this so it's the this family tradition essentially is manifest but what happens is that when his brother is home on leave he leaves his tunic on the back of the chair in the kitchen and he comes home from having a skin full or whatever like that from a night out. And he finds his younger brother, who's a sworn member of the IRA, sitting on the opposite kitchen chair, holding this British Army tunic on his index finger like it's a piece of dirt on his index finger. And he's just like, what the hell is this? And his, a, a massive fight ensues between the two brothers. So you do have that playing out within families because there is one side of the family that could favour the Republican side. And there's another side of the family that doesn't really give a toss about all of that and it just wants to make money, just wants to leave Ireland, go see the world, experience adventure, indulge maybe a fantasy or, you know, or just, yeah. but, but bear in mind that it, this is not necessarily about indulging a fantasy or about, about sating a desire for adventure. This is about following a family path, which is a well-trodden path. Um, and the the one volunteer I have to say that I always really liked was uh, Sean Deegan, uh, also known as Columbinus Deegan. He later became a Franciscan friar. He used to have ceremonies <laughs> in County Waterford uh, where he'd have, you know, bless animals. He'd bless people's pets. Thousands of people would come from all over the country and he'd do a St. Francis of Assisi thing. Well, Sean Deegan was a motorcyclist in the RAF during the Second World War. He rode behind enemy lines to pick up downed RAF pilots in Normandy. He used to ride on this Harley-Davidson 60cc motorcycle behind enemy lines in the American zone and the British zone. And he's the most hilarious character. His interviews in the IWM, I... I I, I, I promise no, you. No, I'm, I'm going I'm to yeah, get them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What's he called? Oh Sean God. Deacon. Sean Deegan. Deegan. He joins the RAF because he's very anxious to get into military service. He tries joining the Irish Army, uh, and the Irish Army recruiter just takes one look at him and he said, You're too skinny. Fill yourself out and come back to me in a year. And he, he's also too young as well. But he manages to go off and go into the RAF with help from the British, um, uh, the British UK representative's office in Dublin. And he goes up to Belfast and he joins up. After failing for flight training because he got sickness and he had to basically, they tried to invalid him out, um, he managed to maintain his situation within the RAF and not be turned out, not be rejected as medically unfit. And they retrained him for the, these particular duties. But he said that when he was on the parade ground uh, during his training, um, when they finished their training, a, a, a leading aircraft man came along and he had a, a, basically a clipboard and he started calling out for recruits for particular service. So he was like pilots, okay, engineers, you know, aircraft man and 
all these recruits would step forward. And then he and then he'd call out, he'd leave for the last air gunners. Nobody wanted to be an air gunner during the Second World War. And all the Irish stepped forward. All the Irish in that training unit stepped forward. And they stepped forward because you got 24 shillings a week. You got immediate promotion. You got your sergeant stripes, access to the officer's mess. And, you know, sort of didn't seem to care much about the considerable risks, about the fact that their highest rate of attrition within the RAF at that time was increasingly, um, you know, inflicted upon bomber crews and particularly air gunners. And there's a huge amount of Irish air gunners that were lost over Europe during the Second World War. And Deegan received hundreds, he said hundreds of letters were written to him by Irish families all over the country, relatives of airmen who never came home, who never were heard of again. And one of those airmen was my grandmother's cousin, Thomas Brennan, and he was lost over Germany in 1943. I thought he'd been killed, but I discovered that he'd actually been a POW. But for some reason, he never came home. And he's one of he's one of. So thousands. you never found out what happened to him? I never found out what happened to him. I've, they're, they're doing a project on uh, prisoner of war records in the National Archives. And I've been trying to locate him within these records. There are a couple of Thomas Brennans coming up. Doesn't seem to really match um, the, the profile. But he did exist because his record is there within a sort of a role of honour of airmen who were killed and who were POWs during the Second World War, about 40, I don't know how many, 40, 50,000 of them. And he's there very clearly. And the date that he was shot down, he was in... Um, Funny enough, a Belfast manufactured bomber um, um, made it short at Harland. I can't remember. Can't remember the exact name of the bomber, but he was shot down over Hanover, and um, he bailed out over Hanover. And what had happened to him was there were three camp numbers affiliated associated with Thomas Brennan. It was probably a Sterling, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was a Sterling. Yeah, a yeah, short yeah, Sterling. A short Sterling. Yeah, he was shot. He was a tail gunner in a short Sterling. I don't know how the hell he managed to bail out of a short Sterling as a tail gunner, but anyway, he did, and uh, he ended up uh, being sent to a camp in the east. And you can tell this from the camp numbers that are uh, with his record. Uh, the squadron kept um, his old squadron um, kept uh, records of all the POWs that were essentially and people who were killed during the war. And they had a record of his stalag numbers. And the stalags are in Lithuania and eastern Poland. So he was very clearly a, uh, a victim of the death march across Germany. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I don't pity him being at San Bosso. I was there last October. It's a really grim place. I interviewed a man who uh, was in the um, he was in the fifteenth uh, Highland Division. It was the fifteenth Lowland Division? Sorry, he's in yeah. the he, but he's in the Seaforth Highlanders, and he he maintains that right. he came ashore within the fifteenth divisional area, and uh, he go, he goes into the Seaforth Highlanders essentially when he lands on the beach and he's brought in. He ends up uh, fi- he he ends up meeting a friend of his who he served in the London Metropolitan Police with. His, sorry, his name, um, just to backtrack, his name is John Mahoney, uh, or Jack Mahoney, and he's from County Kerry. And uh, he died about a year or two ago. He was 101. And Jack was actually mm. taken prisoner in Belgium or Holland. I can't remember. He was captured in Belgium or Holland, and I interviewed him. And he was a very tough man. Like I mean, he was in the flying squad in the London Metropolitan Police that inspired the TV show The Sweeney. He was involved in the arrests of the Crays and the Richardsons. He brought down himself and his men in the Flying Squad brought down some of the toughest, most notorious gangs in London. Um, but uh, he, when he told me about his experiences as a POW, it, it broke him. He, he, he began to sob 
weep in front of me and I had to switch off my recorder. And he told me about Fallingbostel in particular. He said that when he came through Fallingbostel, and this gave me an idea of what oh, conditions were like at the end of Yeah, yeah, Fallingbostel. Um, they were taking bodies, POWs, out of the huts and burying them in mass graves behind the huts. So that gives you an idea of the conditions that were there. And he saw those conditions for himself. So those would have been the conditions that my grandmother's cousin would have met when he came to the end of his journey. And there are stories about long march survivors climbing into their bunks at the end of their journey and going to sleep and not waking up. So I can well imagine that that might have been the fate that met him. And that's the reason why he didn't come home. I don't know. I don't know. It's all, it's all ahead of me to find out what happened to him, if I ever do. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. But, but I mean, but, but, but Irishmen were, were and, and women indeed, were serving all around the world, weren't they? Yes, they were. They were. There were like 700 men who were taken prisoner um, by the Japanese um, when um, the British, um, um, I suppose, the initial British military resistance or British military offensives in the Far East uh, became overwhelmed by the Japanese advance in Malaya and in Singapore as well. And, you know, there are there are at least three, two to three hundred prisoners that are taken in Singapore that are from Ireland. Um, and actually, one very interesting story is actually of one um, prisoner uh, who's from Carrick and Shannon whose um, household, the home that he grew up in, was paid for by a military service pension. Military service pension is something that you get when you serve in the IRA during the War of Independence. And in particular, when you're, you get a military service pension if you were involved in an engagement that resulted in the death of at least one member of the Crown Forces. So in other words, his father was an active IRA member who saw combat and actually participated in an action that resulted in the death of a policeman or a British soldier or an auxiliary or whatnot. So essentially his father was on the forefront of the Irish War of Independence. And that's the household that he grew up in. But, <laughs> but when he, when he, ser- he serves in the British Army and he has, he's one of a number of Irish prisoners that insist upon his Irish national, nationality being recorded by his Japanese captors. Um, and you have also an extraordinary story um, on the opposite side of this, the Anglo-Irish side, who are uh, broadly very pro-British. You have um, two, a father and son, two prisoners, the Loftus Tottenhams. Uh, the son uh, goes out to Australia in the 1930s and he serves in a cattle ranch. He's, he's working in a cattle ranch in Australia and he joins the Australian army during the Second World War. His father is like a colonel or brigadier, I can't remember exactly, but he's a, he's a senior, and he's taken prisoner in the Far East, I think in Malaya, and they end up at a POW camp somewhere, and they meet the son in the Australian army and the father in the British army, and they meet, they're reunited My. in a POW camp. My God. opposite sides of the globe. It's the most extraordinary story. That's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, isn't that brilliant? Yeah. God. Did they both then survive? Yeah, they both survived. They both survived. Yes. Um, yeah. There are there are obviously very sad stories. Um, there uh, was a, there was an Irish army deserter. Imagine this: a man who would have deserted in 1941, uh, 1940, 1941, who ends up in the British army in Singapore, who's actually in the hospital in Singapore where the Japanese famously slaughtered. Uh, the um, the uh, residents, the nurses, the staff, the patients, mm. and um, I mean the and I according to an eyewitness account, I mean he was among those men that were basically forced out of their beds and essentially paraded down into a room, um, and they were basically made 
you know, stand in a line and they're brought into the room one by one to basically serve as a dummy for bayonet practice by Japanese soldiers. So that's one particularly sad story. And this is a man who, you know, he left the Irish army to join the British forces. He abandoned, as I, as I say, contra contrary to the definition of desertion, abandoned a post <laughs> of safety for a post of danger. And this is one of these very controversial issues that occurred in the early part of the last decade about whether desertion had been right or wrong, whether the government had been too harsh on them. Well, when I think of men like this, men who, you know, sort of never came home after they deserted from the Irish army, you know, who died, you know, about three, four hundred of them, who never, who never returned to Ireland, um, you know, I, I can't help but think that maybe the government had been a little bit harsh and that uh, Irish society could have shown a little bit more clemency towards these men. You're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We need to take a short break right now. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Joseph Quinn about Irish volunteers. There has been controversy around the service of all of these men, and then in particular this subset. Um, is that... Where, was that immediate or was it a thing that developed or was it a thing that, you know, that was then thrown into contrast by the, by um, politics and, and events in Northern Ireland as well? I mean, where, where, what, what's the what's the sort of evolution of the post-war story of of the uh, how these men were received on returning and what their legacy Funny becomes? Funny thing, uh, Al, it's not controversial at all during the war because it's accepted, broadly accepted within Irish society. Yeah. The government permitted. In fact, they, the... Um, the British representative in Ireland, John Maffey, has a conference with De Valera, uh, where De Valera, and they have a very good relationship. De Valera maintains an excellent yeah. relationship with the German representative, Dr. Edward Hempel, and yeah. the British representative. And this really serves yeah. Ireland's purpose very nicely. But one of the things that De Valera does in his conversation, one of his first conversations with Sir John Maffey, is he says to him, we know that young men and women are joining the British forces freely. We place no barriers in their path and will will not do so, um, uh, but we, it would help us greatly if you could make arrangements uh, so that they do not come home in uniform. You see, it's fine for them to serve in the British forces, yeah. but they must not return home in uniform. So according to Columbinus Deegan, Sean Deegan, who I was telling you about earlier, I mean, he yeah. said that yeah. when you're going home and leave, you came to Hollyhead, the port of Hollyhead, where most Irish foot yeah. passengers and pedestrians, you know, are, you know, where they go through on their way back to Dublin. And um, he said that you arrived at a, at, at a particular hut or office and it, it was basically a warehouse filled with civilian suits. And he said that you handed over their uniform, <laughs> they gave you like a cloakroom, they gave you a number and they put your uniform away on a hanger and they gave you a civilian suit and you travelled back to Ireland incognito. <laughs> and that was the suit that you wore during your time on leave, essentially. And you had police and customs officials uh, around the port and on the boats keeping an eye out for anybody who might be wearing a uniform. One guy, um, uh, Don Mooney, who was, uh, Don Mooney was the scion of a sort of a, a bread baking uh, dynasty in Dublin, very popular one, Johnston, Mooney and O'Brien, uh, essentially a, a, a very famous bakers in the Dublin area. Yeah. Um, Don Mooney was in the Royal Engineers, he was captain. And he actually decided, feck it, I'm going to wear my uniform home. And he wore it under a trench coat. And he managed to get off the boat without being apprehended, with a, basically dress, dressed <laughs> as a brown job. And he walked up the street um, in Black Rock to his family home, past the, the, the home of the German representative in Ireland. 
and there was a big you know Nazi flag a swastika fluttering outside the German representative's home and Captain Mooney couldn't help but comment on the fact you know how odd it is that I an Irishman wearing a British soldier's uniform should walk past a German ambassador's house with a Nazi flag flying outside he said in what other universe would something like this happen God, yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Uh, it's incredible. fascinating, isn't it? I knew none of this. I have to yeah. say, or very little of it. Anyway. Now, well, in terms of the controversy, the controversy happens after the war, as you say, Al. And it's yeah. to do, it's not to do with the fact that these people served or the fact that their service was controversial in any way. It's to do with the fact that Ireland is in, like, the neutral Irish state is in deep doo doo with the major stakeholders that came out of the Second World War. Now, and you. Some people back home may be wondering to themselves, you know, did De Valera hedge his bets? You mentioned the word hedging your bets, um, James, earlier. Irish people, the members of the Irish public might have been hedging their bets. Maybe they thought that Britain might have been overwhelmed during the Second World War. Maybe they thought that Ireland could possibly have been invaded by either side. We don't know. Uh, what their feelings were. It, 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 maybe there was an attitude that the war could have gone either way. But I can tell you that De Valera didn't think the war was going to go either way. He didn't think that De, he thought that maybe Britain might sue for peace, but he didn't think that Britain would be invaded, and he certainly didn't think Ireland would be invaded by the Nazis. He, I think, Irish political and military leaders understood that um, the Germans would not be able to prevail in the war in that particular sense because they understood the Royal Navy is dominant at sea, they control the seas they're mm-hmm. massively superior and one of the reasons why Ireland is neutral during the Second World War and can be safely neutral is the fact that they're right next door to one of the most powerful belligerents in the world so Ireland <laughs> in some ways is a direct beneficiary of having such a powerful neighbour as Britain uh, the only risk of invasion that Ireland uh, face is Anglo-American invasion. Um, if yeah. there is, you know, sort of a, a an issue of security around D-Day, there was the yeah, American yeah, yeah. note crisis. Yeah. Apparently, the American representative in Ireland, who was a total basket case, uh, apparently let the cat out of the bag in the months leading up to D-Day, and he more or less said that the German and Japanese legations had to get out. It came across as an ultimatum to the British government, uh, sorry, to the Irish government, and the Irish government had to seek clarification with Churchill: Are we going to be invaded? if there's a security breach and basically your planned invasion of the continent of Europe fails um, because we will not take responsibility for that. We're doing all we can. We're assisting you, giving you weather reports, intelligence, decrypts, everything like that. And we're doing all we can within the limits of neutrality. So after the war, uh, Ireland uh, tries to justify everything it does. The the Irish diplomatic service, uh, they point, you know, we gave... The British intelligence. We gave them weather reports. We um, we assisted them. We allowed planes to fly over our airspace, and um, our civilians went over to Britain in their thousands and worked in the factories in Britain. Worked in the munitions plants, and most importantly, and this is something they really roll out um, um, with, with you know sort of the, with a lot of panache is the is the fact that so many Irish served in the British forces and incredible figures yeah. of like. 200,000, quarter of a million, even 300,000 figures like that are rolled out in by newspapers right. and magazines all over the world. I, all this information is sourced from Irish consuls and Irish representatives working in diplomatic missions in Commonwealth countries in the United States and various different other posts. And they re, So the Irish diplomatic propaganda machine really starts to go to work around 1946 
to show that Ireland, even though they were neutral, uh, really helped during the Second World War. And the Irish volunteers are a big part of that story. They really are. Um, but there are many reasons why the Irish government felt it necessary to do that. One, they wanted martial aid. Two, they wanted a more friendly relationship with Britain and with all the major allied powers, particularly America. You might think Britain was sore with Ireland after the Second World War. Well, there was nothing like how sore the Americans were with us. They were really pissed at the fact that we were neutral during the Second World War. Roosevelt had absolutely no time for de Valera or for any Irish nationalists during the war on account of the fact that we resolutely adhere to neutrality. Um, a diplomatic mission visited him in the White House. Um, Frank Aiken, uh, a Northern Irish Catholic who was a little bit blunt, not very diplomatic and a bit, bit sort of impetuous, uh, he is visiting uh, Roosevelt in the company of Robert Brennan, who's the Irish representative in Washington. And um, Roosevelt, he's there on a mission to buy weapons. He wants to buy about 20,000 uh, old American rifles um, for the Irish Defence Forces. And Roosevelt said, and what are you going to use these weapons for exactly? I mean, uh, you know, sort of, you know, is there, they're not a minimal risk of invasion at this particular point. Or, you know, who are you expecting invasion from? He said, but, you know, is it the, a German invasion? And Aiken suggests, well, there, there's just as likely to be a British invasion of Ireland as a German invasion. So he indicates that there is a fear that the British might <laughs> invade from the north. And Roosevelt <laughs> gets extremely angry and he apparently flings a tablecloth off a side table that, it, that he's been prepared for lunch and he flings about 10, 15, 20 pieces of cutlery across the Oval Office floor and he yells at Aiken, he said don't be so bloody ridiculous and he gives them a right dressing down and shortly afterwards the, the interview with Roosevelt concludes and it's a real nadir in relations between the Irish and the Americans and it's all on account of uh, of Irish neutrality, so so there's backpedalling to be done after the war. Basically, there's this. Well, we were neutral, but we were helping really yeah, behind yeah, the yeah. scenes, and so, so gosh, unneutral neutral Ireland so how- is the is the title of a very famous article that appears in 1946. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's written by it's written by the former editor of the Irish Times, uh, who um, R M Smiley, who is very much pro British, and the Irish Times is an a traditionally Irish Protestant newspaper um, that essentially yeah. flouts censorship regulations to show, you know, they're, they're supportive of the policy of neutrality, but at the same time, they're very supportive of the Allied cause. And even at the end of the war, they literally give two fingers to the censors by putting a V for Victory sign at the front of their newspaper made up of photographs of the key players in the Second World War. They basically line up the photographs kind of in a V-shape. And that is their way. They, they did all sorts of things like that. Like when one of their, one of their staff members is, who was serving, he was serving on the HMS, I think he was on the HMS Repulse out in the Far East. And when the Repulse was, or it was the Prince of Wales, it was the Prince of Wales. His name was Leonard Robinson. And when the Prince of Wales was sunk, um, they reported in the newspaper, one of our uh, staff members Robinson he's been in a boating accident out in the Far East so they did all, sort, all sorts of things like that to kind of get around the censor to sort of show their solidarity with the Allied war effort and I guess this is the last thing I would say is that the reason Ireland are neutral during the Second World War is because of the divided nature of society it's because one person or another will choose a side and it's because there's a real possibility that there might be a civil war in Ireland 
if we enter yeah. the Second World War. The real reason why we're neutral during the Second World War is because of security and because of the internal instability within society, which is a legacy of the Irish Civil War. And it can't, it wouldn't be able to cope with the pressure of, of picking a side. Absolutely not. Um, e- even though lots of Irish people in, are in effect picking a side by, by going and fighting for the, for the British Empire, I mean, that they've just given the slip to. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's oh gosh, it's extraordinary stuff. So how does that then mutate into a co- controversy about men's service l- later on? That, because, uh, because, because, you know, you're, you're, you're starting in a position of, I mean, obviously, oppositional politics always has a part to play in these sort of these sort of flip flops, yeah. doesn't it? Because if you've proposed if you've proposed something quite strongly, inevitably in oppositional politics, the other side has to say they don't like the idea of it um, uh, uh, to define themselves politically. Yeah. So is is that what well, happens? Yeah, I mean, the Irish Volunteers become associated with the opposition uh, to De Valera's Fianna Fáil during the Second World War, the Fine Gael right. Party, the Fine Gael Party, and actually even the Fine Gael Party were in power when. The Irish Army deserters were pardoned in 2013. Uh, the minister who actually uh, was responsible for the pardon, Mr. Alan Chatter, he was then a uh, TD or an MP, and he was the minister for justice yeah. and defence. He oversaw the pardon, and he had an idea, a very strong ideological sympathy with the Allied cause because he comes from the Jewish community. So he's a very, he's right, very right. much sympathetic with the Allied cause, and um, and he very much reflected that within the legislation that was passed. So the Fine Gael Party have a long history been associated with the volunteers, and they defended, you know, the def- they defended deserters that were arrested in 1945 upon their return home that were being court-martialed by yeah. the Irish military authorities, and they spoke, you know, sort of they they kind of signified you know, in a, a, a slight sympathy with that side, while not completely yeah. uh, sympathy, but, but there were strong allied sympathies within the Fine Gael party. I mean, we did have, briefly, we had a leader, uh, James Dillon, James Dillon, he was the briefly the yeah. leader of the Fine Gael party, and he was considered to be the Irish version of Churchill, and he had very strong moral feelings about Ireland's position in the war and wanted Ireland to enter the war. Well, people like this really voiced a lot of uh, strong uh, feelings about the volunteers but if you're asking within Irish society the controversy around yeah. Irish service and military uniform that's a legacy of the troubles in Northern Ireland there are yeah. RAF clubs and British Legion clubs all over the island you know a, a tra- a, a, right up into the troubles in Northern Ireland and in Dublin yeah. um, what happens is that the RAF club is uh, petrol bombed when the troubles kick right. off so what happens is that there's a growth of intolerance towards remembrance and towards um, any activity, cultural or otherwise, that remembers the Irish who served in British uniform. And that applies not just to the Second World War veterans, but also to the First World War veterans as well. Yeah. And this is, this is really? yes, absolutely. I mean, it's tied, both conflicts, service in both conflicts and service in British uniform generally is tied up with this. I mean, I've heard stories about... Irish uh, sons, you know, from Dublin writing home to their mothers, pretending to be on a building site in Birmingham or Manchester, when in fact they're actually on the Falkland Islands, you know, fighting against the Argentinians. (laughs) They're just lying to their families about the fact that they've joined the British Army because British service, service in British uniform becomes unacceptable within Nationalist Ireland. If it was acceptable before, it becomes unacceptable after bloody Sunday in the early 1970s and with the escalation of the Northern Ireland conflict. This has huge damage upon the culture of remembrance in Ireland. And what's, what's referred to by many historians 
as a, a great amnesia within Irish society towards particularly First World War veterans. This is applied also to the Second World War. But there is um, a late historian, David Fitzpatrick, who actually examined my PhD thesis. He gave a talk in Trinity College where he said, I've heard many people refer to the great amnesia ad nauseum. And he said, and I'm attempting to replace the word amnesia with another word, aspasia, which is loss of speech. He said, people didn't lose their memories about what happened in the Great War, even in, you know, during back in those days, they didn't lose their memories at all. The memory was ubiquitous. There was a loss of speech. People didn't speak about it. It was, you know, it was something that was hushed up. It was always remembered, but never spoken about. And that was, to a certain extent, that was what happened uh, with the Irish volunteers. But in 1995, this began to change with the opening of the Irish uh, War Memorial Gardens, the reopening of the Memorial Gardens at Island Bridge uh, by uh, the then Irish Prime Minister, John Bruton. And John Bruton is the first Prime Minister to give voice to the Irish volunteers. And he talks about the 165, 170,000 Irish volunteers who fought for the Allied cause against the the evils of Nazism. And he refers to this in his speech, I'm paraphrasing. And this is coinciding with the opening of these war memorial gardens that were designed to commemorate the Irish who died in the First World War. And it's a big moment. Previously, these war memorial gardens in the 1960s and 70s have been used as a rubbish tip. That shows you where remembrance culture had gone in Ireland towards remembrance of of the Irish. And where where are we at now? Well, I'll tell you where we're at now. Um, We're we're coming to the end in the Republic of Ireland. To say I'm not in the Republic of Ireland now, I'm in London. But in terms of the Irish public, we're coming to the end of what we call the decade of commemorations, where we're remembering the decade of centenaries going from the the Ulster um, home rule crisis the Ulster Covenant, yeah. right through the First World War, the 1916 Rising, the 1918 General Election, the War of Independence, and the Civil War and the birth of the Irish state. We're commemorating this. We've been commemorating this over the past uh, seven or eight years. And the great triumph of this program of state commemorations that, have been, that, are, that are island-wide, they apply to Northern Ireland as well as to the Republic of Ireland, the great triumph has been First World War commemoration. It has been completely resurrected within Irish society. It has been embraced by the government from the president all the way down. There has been official state attendance at these these First World War ceremonies. And the First World War dead throughout the island have been remembered. So in nationalist Ireland, there is now an acceptable form of remembrance for those who died in the First World War. And this this uh, germ, this this uh, this germ of goodwill um, towards war remembrance, the the service of those who fought and died in British uniform, has spread to a certain extent towards the Second World War volunteers as well. Whether it takes on the same spirit as it did for First World War commemoration in the Republic as it did in the last uh, five, six years, which was quite extraordinary to behold. anybody could say but one of the things I will say is that there is a huge amount of interest in the Republic of Ireland towards the volunteers and there is massive amount of interest about stories about people who served during the Second World War from from Dublin from Cork you know we're hearing all these stories of people that yeah. 
you know, they were they were the postman, they were the milkman, they were the builder, they worked in the Guinness Brewery, they were ordinary people and were suddenly discovering that they're storming the beaches of Normandy, they're flying over Germany night after night in the RAF, you know, and they're serving on the North Atlantic, um, you know, escorting the convoys or in the Merchant Navy. And we're hearing these extraordinary stories for the first time in years. And that has been quite a humbling experience to, to have been a part of as an historian working on this. Because all, because, because all the British accounts you read of anything, um, there's always an Irishman in them. There's always someone called, P- Paddy, called Paddy, yeah. if I'm, I mean, I'm not, you know, inevitably, yeah. there is always someone. Because yeah. I'm, I'm reading this, I'm reading uh, uh, this account of, um, of, of, of 52nd Lowland um, uh, Division at the moment. And there's, you know, they're, they're ostensibly all jocks, is what he calls them. They call them the jocks. But there's Irish guys in there too. Yeah. And that it, it inevitably, and in every single account, there are Irish people present. But, well, but, there was in the Sherwood but, Rangers as well. There's Ronnie Hart. Well, absolutely. So, to, but to hear it reflected, that to actually hear it from an Irish perspective, rather than you know, they're sort of like raisins in a fruitcake, as it were. You, 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 you know when you I mean? were reading, when you were reading <laughs> Zeno's The Cauldron, when you were uh, producing yeah. that wonderful yeah. audio book for us. Uh, thank you for that, yeah. by the way. You uh, you, you, oh, you read out a section in Zeno's The Cauldron about. Um, the, this Irishman, oh yeah, it's the fighting Irishman who's, who just wants to fight yeah, and kill. Yeah, he would have as soon as a British stereotype. Yeah, he would have yeah. as soon as joined the German army as he would have the British army if he'd, <laughs> yeah, if he'd yeah, been yeah. able to. Yeah, and I, I, I was, yeah. I was out for a run on Twickenham Green and I was listening to this and I kept playing it going back thirty seconds over and over again, listening to that. Does that we catch that again? <laughs> I was just like. I, I found it so funny, so hilarious that I just repeatedly listened to it. Because, and the truth <laughs> about it is, I don't know. I mean, there weren't, there aren't, there isn't as much of a record of, of Irish people serving in German uniform. There is, there's a story of two guys, and they end up in the German, they end up in the SS because they're actually in the British Army, and they're left behind yeah. on the island of Jersey. By I can't remember the regiment. There's about a hundred of them on the island. They pull out and they leave these two guys behind. One of them is called Stringer because they were involved in a public order offence on the streets when they were out having a few drinks and they were went down a, a street in a Jersey town shouting up the IRA, come out you black and tan and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. So understandably, the police <laughs> policemen come along and they throw them in the clanger. And when the regiment is pulling out before the Germans arrive, they just decide. Uh, fuck these lads and they just basically they head yeah. home and they leave them in the jail <laughs> and, and these guys are left in the jail and the the Germans show up and these guys are offered they're given the offer do you want to join the British for- sorry the German forces and they they join the Germans and they end up in the SS and their commanding officer is a guy called is um his name is Fuker, F-U-C-K-E-R. Uh, yeah, and I just see where this is going. Yeah, absolutely. And these are the only two Irish guys that we know of that serve in the SS. And there's talk yeah. about maybe a few Irish people who ended up serving in the Wehrmacht. There, there isn't anything like the the British, the you know, the Fry Corps unit uh, that yeah, occurs yeah, yeah. here. Nothing like that. Um, there's nothing like the casement brigade or anything like that and in fact I, there's no evidence that POWs were recruited in this manner Irish POWs in, in, in uh, German POW camps were recruited into the German forces 
Well, the, the Germans aren't alive to the subtleties of any any um, British politics, let alone um, Anglo-Irish relations or any of that, are they? They're, they're, they're so uh, clunkingly ignorant of what's going on. So in that respect, so they're unlikely to, I suppose. I must just tell you, though, I must just tell you that, that some years ago, though, uh, and this was an interest of kind of um, um, an indication of the interest in, in Ireland, I was invited to the uh, Listol military tattoo, which was just absolutely fantastic. And in the middle of, um, and uh, you know, it looks like an Irish town, but it also, I suppose, if you sort of squint and half look at it in a kind of, in a different way, it could easily be a, um, you know, Carentan in Normandy or something. So anyway, so they, part of it on the Sunday morning, I think it was, or the Saturday morning, I can't remember, they recreated a Normandy street battle with Germans and, and, <laughs> and, and Americans. And, and it was just completely fantastic. It was just totally surreal because they didn't shut down the town so people were still sort of driving past through in their kind of sort of modern volkswagen golf or whatever uh, and suddenly it'd be a sort of germans careering around a corner sort of you know firing their schmeisser and stuff anyway the following morning i came down to breakfast and um there were a whole load of of, of guys in german uniform and um i sat next to um sat next to rommel because <laughs> this guy you know he sat there and he sort of carefully sat down next to me with his and he was in full general kit and he took off his cap and he put it down to me and i said oh you know hi i'm james and everything and he said oh yeah the name's rommel field marshal Irwin." <laughs> so fantastic it was just the funniest thing yeah. I, 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 um, I wanted to actually give you um, a funny story there's a man I, I used to visit for years he lived in Sandy Mount in Dublin and I, I, I really miss him his name is Dennis Murnane and he was fantastic he was such a wit he went to Trinity um, College I was in Trinity at the time and he was there for two years and he dropped out his father died he was training to be a barrister and he decided, you know, law's not for me. Um, and he decides to join the RAF. There are many reasons why he decides to join the RAF, but I think one of the big inspirations was seeing a Heinkel fly directly over Trinity College Dublin, chased by two RAF Spitfires. And they brought him down in Meath. It, it, it was a Heinkel that was bombing Liverpool and two RAF Spitfires. And this happened all the time. Transgressed Irish airspace and brought the guy down in Meath. Um, there are similar stories of uh, uh, Spitfires from South Wales and Cornwall flying off the coast of Wexford at Duncannon Beach in the high summer. And there's several people who happen to be on that beach who watch them do aerial manoeuvres for the entertainment of the crowd below, who end up joining the British forces. So there's stuff like that happening all the time. And Dennis becomes inspired. He decides to join the RAF. S lots of his classmates in Trinity are joining. And uh, he ends up uh, becoming a POW. Uh, because he's shot down, he's, he, he survives so many bombing raids in Germany, but he ends up doing the daylight raid on Cologne, the last bombing raid on Cologne, um, just as the Allies are crossing the Rhine, and, and Cologne is taken by the Americans a few days later. He participates in that last daylight raid, and there's only four Halifaxes that participate in the aerial bomber force, but his was one of the four. And uh, they get hit, and they all bail out, and their pilot unfortunately decides to go down with the aircraft for whatever reason he was jewish that might be a clue um but he goes down with the plane and um dennis uh ends up being interrogated he's a navigator he's an officer and he ends up being interrogated by this um german captain who had been to ireland before the war and dennis said he came into the cell to break me and he said but 
he ended up getting frustrated and asking me, you know, you know, why are you, why are you fighting with the British? You know, the British are your natural enemy. We are your natural ally. You know, you you need to side with us. Why are you fighting? And Dennis is just looking at him and he's just like, why are you getting so agitated about it? And he said at the end of the interrogation, he said he was the one who came out of the cell, the broken man, not me. He had a nervous <laughs> breakdown about the fact that Dennis had served in British uniform. And he just couldn't. And Dennis was just sitting there with, a, you know, a snotty South yeah, Dublin, so a snotty South Dublin. He's, he's South Dublin middle class boy who basically, you know, very you know, very full of himself and he's just looking at this guy and he's just like, you know, like he's he's just like, you know, what are you on about? Like, you know, I I I cho- I I, I, cho- I chose to join the RAF voluntarily. I don't have any regrets about it whatsoever. He's just like and he said, You clearly don't know anything about Irish people, you know. That, that's his attitude. And um I think it's very revealing about sort of what the the societal stereotypes about Irish people about whether we're pro-British or anti-British. It's not as simple as that. And um, there are people who, you know... It's like a good fight, don't you? That's yeah, well, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, there, are sworn members, there are sworn members of the IRA who serve in British uniform. There are, you know, the sons of um, Anglo-Irish Protestant Unionists, former Unionists, who serve as officers in the British Army. You know, there's a military caste. There's, there's it, it, recruitment to the British forces from Ireland it comes from all corners of society, rich and poor, you know, upper class, middle class, working class, and all religions. And it's it's something that kind of, in some ways, in a very funny way, kind of binds the country together. The fact that so many different peoples from different different corners of uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland chose to join. And the big saying that a lot of volunteers came out with from North and South whether they were Orangemen or, you know, Catholic, Republican nationalists, they were all called Paddy. They said, we were all called Paddy. It didn't matter whether what background you were from. <laughs> Everybody in Britain referred to us as Paddies or Mick. And uh, this is, it's this common identity that's applied to all Irish people, uh, all uh, from North and South during the war, uh, which resonates very strongly, particularly given the fact that North and South are in a kind of a Cold War scenario. The governments don't talk to one another, and there's not much by way of compatibility between the unionist community and nationalist community at, at, at that particular time. Gosh, how extraordinary. It's been great. Yeah, I've loved this. We, we, fantastic. fantastic. We could talk about this literally forever um, uh, uh, and delve right into it. But, um, uh, Joseph, thank you so much for talking to us today. And I, um, we'll have to... We have to we have to get you back on and talk about it some more because like it's it's this is going to be one of these ones where I um, I'll be thinking about this for like weeks. Thank Joseph, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.